Hello, everyone. I'm Sierra. And I'm Ashley. And this is your Weekly Weekly Dose Dose of Wicked. Is that what I was? Is that what I was supposed to do? I guess whatever you want to. Oh, okay, I wasn't really sure because you've never done anything weird like that before. Let's try something new. Didn't work. I won't do it again. I liked it. It was good. Let's do it every week from here on out. Sounds like the plan, Stan. So anyway, happy Wednesday, Hump Day. Today is March twenty second, twenty twenty three. Um, it is officially spring. Woohoo! Pollen season. Three years ago, the state of North Carolina started to shut down for COVID, so I'm glad that time has passed. On the first day of spring? Yeah, it was the 20th. Oh. So I guess only two days ago. I don't know. It was either the 19th or the 20th. It doesn't really matter the date. All I know is that my Facebook memories are full of me being unemployed. (laughs) Since I was like the first group of workers to be laid off due to COVID. Yeah, that was a fun time. Not really. It was not a fun time. I mean, it didn't really affect you yet at this point. At this point, you weren't affected yet. I was like, on, this is what annoyed me about this, is that all other occupations, and I don't know about other states, but all other occupations were giving ample notice to the fact that they were going to be losing their jobs for an unknown amount of time, right? Like Governor Cooper kept saying like, um, he did like these, I call them like Hunger Game meetings, but it was like these Friday meetings where he would like call us all together and tell us what was going on and he would be like all right on monday at 5 p.m and he would give a whole weekend's notice but then you remember restaurant workers there was no notice it was literally noon and he called an emergency meeting and then he broadcast that restaurants had five hours to shut down oh yeah they had until 5 p.m to shut all their doors so it was literally like i woke up that morning employed and then by noon i had no job yeah it was a horrible day see mine was like Hey, so I think we're our department's not essential, so we have to shut down. And then 15 minutes later, they were like, never mind. They have deemed us essential. We don't have to shut down. And then they were like, never mind. Now we are unessential and we have to shut down. And then like 30 minutes later, they were like, well, we might be essential. We'll let you know in the morning. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it was quite yep, the roller yep. coaster. But anyways, yeah. you know, we're past the shutdown, so that's cool. No, I just enjoy looking back at that time, too, because it's also when I was sharing, like, all of those funny memes and stuff. And it was, like, um, uh, dads who have had to spend, like, one weekend with their children not being able to go anywhere. And then it's, like, stay-at-home moms. Welcome to hotel hell. Check-in is now. Check-out is never. And I was, like, yes. I was, like, reading them. And I was, like, gosh, first of all, I'm hilarious. Second of all, what a great time that was. What a, what a time to be alive. And it was also when I shared that really funny meme, people's thoughts on homeschooling moms yesterday. And it was like little Amish women knitting. And it was people's idea of homeschooling moms now. And it was the mafia. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There were some good memes to come out of COVID. But anyway. I don't really think. Just a little fun fact for you. Our COVID experience. I like to think that it's been long enough now since like the initial shutdown that it's it's a little funny when I look back at it. It's something I never thought I would live through. Yeah, me either. But anyway, all right, so updates this week. We don't have a lot going on. Um, My computer is still broken for anyone that cares because I don't know if you're aware of this, but Apple products are really fucking expensive to fix. Yeah. So in order to fix my computer, $400, and that's with a discount. So uh, speaking of that, um, hey, why don't you guys go look at our Patreon? Yeah, support us. Get your own new computer. I don't need a new computer. I just need to fix mine. Um, yeah, it's been a real, real struggle, real struggle bus here. I'm currently recording on a little Lenovo that is my husband's computer. And I'm going to be honest, I ain't used a Windows computer in a long time. So I don't really know what I'm doing. That's so right. lots of fun. But anyway, um, other updates, nothing really super important as far as like our lives or you know, no new Patreons, do the things, leave us reviews, ra- you know, ratings. Um, go to Facebook, like us, love us, follow us, Instagram. We have a Twitter now. All those It doesn't things. have anything on it, but we have one, so follow us. 
And I'll post some things. That's true. That's true. We do have a Twitter. So moving right along then, Ashley has prepared a great case for us. But prior to that, um, I do just want to share some information from our Facebook. So we received a comment on a post on our Facebook. I'm trying to pull it up because I should have been more prepared, but I'm not. So give me one second. You're never prepared. Oh, thank you. All right. So on January 11th, we posted about a case, um, the murder of Lauren Hugelmeyer Phelps. And I may have said that maiden name incorrectly. I hope not. I think that is how you pronounce it. Um, but Lauren was murdered on August 31st. I think her actual um, like recorded death is September 1st. Either way, though, sometime during the night between August 31st and the morning of September 1st, she was murdered by her husband, Matthew Phelps. He claimed he took too much cold medicine. He stabbed her 120-something times in the night. Um, And then he tried to plea that the cough medicine made him do it. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. It's a devastating story, but her story deserves to be told nonetheless. Anyway, we received a comment from Josh Wagner. So for those of you that don't know, um, Lauren's sister was Beth Agner. So Josh Wagner is Lauren's sister's husband. So he commented on our post and he just had a few things he wanted us to know. Um, it's a little lengthy, but I'm still going to read through the whole thing. So a few things. This is from Josh Wagner. I'm reading it exactly as he typed it on our Facebook. If you want to go check it out again, January 11th. Um, a few things. One, Matt did not want to be a pastor. He just went to Bible college because his grandparents made him go there to help keep him out of trouble. He was as far away from Christianity as you could get. Two, Dale did approve of Matthew. The stuff about him not approving was made up by TV. We accepted him from the start. Dale did not care that he had been married before. He only cared that Matt made his daughter happy. All of the other stuff is made for TV drama. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Dale was Lauren's father. Um, Number three, the groomsmen did not all carry lightsabers at the wedding. Only Matt and Lauren did for pictures. Number four, the stuff about Matt's mom was pretty much true. I'm sure that some of those issues were dramatized as I was not involved in everything, but I did hear about everything. Number five, the TV show was almost entirely made up for drama. We did not know what it was going to be, or we did not know that it was going to be that made up. Uh, We hate how Dale was made out to be some kind of villain when in actual reality, he tried really hard with Matt. Number six, David did not exist. We did not say anything about a David. What we did say is that Matt was jealous of all of Lauren's male friends. David was a composite of basically all of her male friends, and he was jealous of a lot of things, but expected Lauren to be okay with everything that he did. So the whole conversation about that was just wrong. She was open and honest about her relationship with all of her friends, so that irritates me to hear someone suggest that Lauren even slightly did something that was uncouth when Matt cheated on his first wife with multiple women as well try to cheat on Lauren with multiple women. He was jealous because he was being unfaithful and put his guilt onto her. Her friends were legitimately not a threat. If it was such a big deal, why would Lauren try and do everything to save their marriage if she had a good thing going with someone else? P.S. Lauren invited Matt to hang out with them. Number seven, he was spending the money all on online video games. It was not Fortnite. It was a Marvel game on his phone. Number eight, Lauren did not know about the previous marital issues. She believed Matt's story that Brooke cheated on him. Number nine, he composed himself and there was evidence he cleaned himself up before calling the police. He even researched a lot of different things to get stories weeks before the murder happened. His blood work proved he was not high. The cold medicine was nicely laid out for the police to find. Uh, Number 10, he did not change his plea to not guilty on 10-5. We spent a year fighting... I'm sorry, we spent a year figuring out what to do, and we finally accepted a plea deal of life without the possibility of parole. That was a year later. Thanks for keeping this somewhat based on reality, but the relatively evil TV show was really based on made-for-TV drama. At the end, you did mention David as being a cop-out, and I appreciate that, especially because that was all made up for TV. So, I don't know that there was anything. Um, Him, we had, ooh, I'm sorry, I smacked my mic. We had a little bit of a back and forth. I don't know that anything in the back and forth is really super important. Um, I just told him, you know, that we were sorry for his loss. Lauren seemed like an amazing woman. It was a tragedy um, that she was taken before her time. Um, I told him that his wife, Beth, seems like an amazing person, a wonderful sister. I also told him that I personally never saw Dale as a monster. Um, Whether he accepted Matt or not, I wouldn't judge him one bit if he didn't. Uh, And then I did ask his permission to share it on the podcast. So do we have anything to say in regards to any of that? No, I think you summed it up. Okay, well, I wanted to say, I think he was pointing out like the show was dramatized, which I kind of knew going into it. And I didn't only use the show. I used some articles as sources, but um, I kind of know that going in, though. All of those ID shows are dramatized. 
um, obviously. People love the drama. That's what they like. But I appreciate him reaching out because I think a lot of what he told us was like things that we questioned when we were doing the episode. Um, Like, for example, the Fortnite thing. Like, we were like, what kind of video game is he spending that much money on? That's ridiculous. Maybe he was playing Fortnite. And then we kind of did some research and realized that Fortnite wasn't out yet. But we definitely wanted to know what kind of games he was playing that he was spending so much money on. That was interesting to know. And then I think also we kind of questioned... Like another thing he pointed out, he said there was evidence that he had cleaned himself up before the police got there. We questioned that as well during the episode. Right. You remember? Because I said there's no way that he would have stabbed her in his sleep and then not had any blood on him. Right. And you were like, there's no way he would have stabbed her awake and not had blood on him. So I think he did. It was I appreciate him clearing up things that we didn't know um, to give us, you know, information as a victim's family member. I never in a million years imagined that a victim's family member would ever like reach out to us like that. So I appreciated it. And I'm sure that it was really hard. I mean, he even said it's hard to listen to people tell Lauren's story. So yeah, it was really cool of him to do that. It was and I'm sure it was hard for him. So I appreciate it. Um, I can't imagine that like he uh, maybe I can't imagine he goes around listening to a true crime podcast. So I don't know that he'll ever hear this, but probably not. But that's okay. That's not what we're doing it for. We're just making sure we have proper information. Okay, so um, another update that we have, moving past that, um, Angel Bumpus. There's some information coming out in her case. We covered Angel Bumpus, I don't know when, quite a while ago. And I want to give like a more thorough update next week because she has another court date coming up this week. But essentially, her guilty verdict and life sentence have been overturned, and she has been released on bail. So she is getting a new trial she was thir- she was 13 years old when she supposedly murdered an elderly gentleman. Um, so if you didn't have not listened to that episode, that's another good case. That's a pretty crazy one. You should go listen to it. It's a crazy case. But I will give a more thorough update on that next week after her next hearing um, when we kind of have a better idea of, like, what's going on. But justice for Angel. Yep, justice for Angel because I don't think she did it. No. But I don't know. Nope, nope, nope. All right, so all of that being said, Ashley, what have you prepared for us this week? Well, um, you've probably heard of her before, but um, Martha Moxley, do you know that name? It sounds familiar, but no, I can't place it. I'm sure you've heard it. So anyways, let's jump in. Martha Elizabeth Moxley was born August 16th of 1960 to David and Dorothy Moxley. She had an older brother named John, and they lived in California most of her life, but in 1974, they moved to a private neighborhood of Bellhaven in Greenwich, Connecticut. This all sounds super familiar to me, so I'm sure I've heard it. Like, even, like, the neighborhood sounds familiar. Yeah, well, it's, like, um, a really, it's one of the top 20 wealthiest places in the U.S. Oh, okay. Greenwich, Connecticut. Is. So not somewhere I would live? No, me either. So it's basically, um, it's a private neighborhood. It's basically a gated community. It's located on a beach about 30 minutes outside of New York City. Okay. It was your typical safe place. It was your typical safe place. Uh, Nothing bad ever happened there, one of those. Martha was pretty, smart, athletic, friendly, artistic, and outgoing. She was the new girl in town, but despite that, she quickly became very popular and loved in her community. On October 30th, 1975, Martha went to hang out with her friends. The night before Halloween was known as Mischief Night in her area. Yes, I know that. Oh, do they go to a party? No. Okay, never mind. I don't know who she is then. <laughs> uh, so mischief night. I totally. It's driving me crazy because like I do know this case, yeah, but like I can't. I can't point. I can't point what it is though. So like I keep like running through and I like I was like, oh, do they go to a party? I feel like there's a case where like it's mischief night and they go to a party and like one of the teenage girls gets murdered, but it's not that. I've never heard of mischief night before. But apparently, it's coming. Uh, it's a northern thing. Well, the day before Halloween. You wouldn't know because you're a Southerner. I'm a Yankee, so I know all about it. Oh, yeah, and you're five years. <laughs> of living no, I've actually heard of Mischief Night on, um, it's a lot, it's a big thing on, like, TV and stuff. Hmm. No. But yeah, so the night before Halloween, I knew that. And kids get in trouble because they go around in, like, teepee houses and egg houses and, like, cause mischief. Yeah, ding-dong ditch, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep, I do know about that. So it was supposed to just be a night of harmless fun, but Martha never returned home that night. I, I assumed that would happen. I mean, I thought it was kind of a given, but just in case. Sometimes you don't listen to me, so. Mm-hmm. 
I'm listening. I, I'm playing Mansion to Mansion, but I'm listening. Oh, stop playing Mansion to Mansion, Sierra. <laughs> I knew you were going to yell at me. Yeah, okay. I am. So her curfew was 9.30. 9.30 came and went, and Martha didn't come home. Her mom, Dorothy, was annoyed, but she was a teenager. She gave it some time. When 1 a.m. came around, Martha still had not returned home. Dorothy began to freak out a little. She called her best friend's house to see if maybe Martha had spent the night there. But her best friend said she hadn't seen her in hours. She knew that she was going over to the neighbor's house, so she called them, see if she was still there, or if maybe she had went to sleep there, and he said that he hadn't seen her in a few hours either. Her older brother, John, drove around the neighborhood to see if he could find her. Nothing. So at 3.45 in the morning, Dorothy calls the police. Three police officers show up and begin looking for Martha, but they didn't find anything. The police make a missing person report, but they think, you know, it's mischief night, she's a teenager. Maybe she'll just return by the morning. They tell Dorothy to stay home, get some sleep, and they'll regroup in the morning. But morning comes, and Martha still is not home, and no one has heard from her. So the next morning, Dorothy went over to the Skakel house, which is their next-door neighbor that she was going to see. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the case I thought. Michael answers the door. (laughs) This is the case I thought. Such a little know-it-all. It is. I, I don't know why I thought that it was a party, but yeah, it is the case I thought. I thought it was a party at the neighbors, but I guess it, I, I do know. No, it's just I know like a it hangout. Is. Yeah, a hangout. A kickback. Yeah, a kickback. Okay. Yes, it is the case I was thinking it was. I would like to use my veto card and end the case now. No, I did a lot of research. <laughs> I'm sure you did, but... have anything to put out. I know, Ashley. I just don't want to hear about her getting murdered again. Sorry. Michael answered the door. He said that he hadn't seen her since the night before. And around noon on October 31st, her body was found under a tree at the back of the property, only 200 feet from her house. It was a gruesome scene. 15-year-old Martha was laying face down with her jeans and underwear pulled down to her ankles, severely beaten, stabbed five times, including a stab to the neck with a golf club still sticking out of her neck and covered in blood. They could see a path of blood through the yard where her body had been dragged until she was laid under the tree. They followed the trail until the driveway where there was a large pool of blood, so they assumed that is where she had been killed. And then scattered along this trail were pieces of the golf club. However, the most important part of the golf club, which maybe could identify the killer, was missing. So the grip obviously would have had the most DNA on it, and that was the only part that couldn't have been found. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. If I was going to murder someone with a golf club, I would take the grip. I mean, you would think they would take the whole thing. But... Maybe they couldn't get it out if it was still lodged in her freaking neck. Well, yeah, but there were other pieces scattered on the ground. Oh, okay. It's kind of weird that it was broken up. Yeah, because they beat her so severely. I just can't imagine a golf club. I, I just assumed it would bend. Bend until it snapped, I guess. Okay, it doesn't matter. So obviously, the golf club was determined to be the murder weapon. Would make sense. Did they determine that because it was sticking out of her neck? Probably. I would assume so. Okay. That's why I said obviously. I know. I was not making fun of you. I was making fun of the detective work. Obviously, that would be the murder weapon since it was literally in her neck. Yes. I just wonder how much detective work it really took to come to that conclusion. Hopefully not very much, but you never know. There's no telling. The golf club was determined to be a six iron Tony Penna golf club, which I don't know much about golf clubs. Apparently that's a nice one. I don't know either. I've never, I'm not a golfer. I've never even heard of that, but that's what it says. It was a nice one. So the Connecticut state medical examiner was called in to do the autopsy. Her time of death was determined to be sometime between 9.30 PM on October 30th and 5.30 AM on October 31st. So, huge window. Okay. Yeah, that is a pretty big window. Uh, Later, with the help of witness statements and some forensic evidence, they narrowed down that time of death to be 9.30 to 10 on October 30th. There were no signs of sexual assault, despite her pants and underwear being pulled down, and the cause of death was blunt force trauma. So, they got to work on a timeline. Martha left her house with three friends and went over to the neighbors, the Skakel's house. The Skakel family was the father, Rushton Skakel. And his seven kids. His wife, Anne, had died from cancer in 1973, leaving him to be a single father. The father, Russian's sister, Ethel, 
was the widow of Senator Robert Kennedy, the brother okay. of President That's Kennedy. That's important. Kennedys are important people. Yes. It doesn't um, matter what Kennedy you are. Every Kennedy was an important person. That's true. Whatever happened to the Kennedys? Are they still around? No, but like back then in like the 60s, that's what it was, right? 60s, 70s, like the Kennedys 70s, were a big deal. Yeah. It's like yeah. mid 70s. Kennedys were a real big deal. Right. Huge deal. Okay, so anyway. So you know I love a good conspiracy theory. Okay. And the Kennedys are of all kinds of conspiracy theories. I know. So that's how I first learned about this case. You know that I also love a good conspiracy theory. Yes, you do. We are conspiracy theorists through and through. Yes, I love them. I don't know that I believe them all, but I love to research them. I don't know that I believe them all either, but I love to fall down the rabbit holes of them. Yeah. Like hours later, it's 4 a.m. and I'm still like Googling a conspiracy theory. It's a yeah, yeah. Time. So if you guys have any good conspiracy theories, email them to me. Sierra.wdow at gmail.com. Or, you know, just the weekly dose of wicked at gmail.com so we could both see them. I was just being selfish. Oh, okay. I thought they could send them to me and I'd forward them to you. No. <laughs> all right fine send it to weekly dose of wicked at gmail.com thank you so anyway kennedy's you know they have like that curse of lots of people dying around them lots of bad things happening so that's where i heard this from and when i was racking my brain makes sense trying to come up with a case to do i was like oh let me do that one about the kennedy's it's not really about the kennedy's yeah. but connected to the kennedy's right so anyways, this Giggle family, lots of money, lots of political power. Martha was friends with two of the sons that were around her age, Michael, who was 15, and Tommy, who was 17. That night, they had hung out at their house, and Martha and Tommy had been flirting all night. The friends that they were with said that they remembered them having a playful pushing match, which ended with them falling down behind the fence, and the friends left to give them more privacy around 9.30 p.m. A playful pushing match. Yeah, you know, just kind of like, you know, like when you're teenagers, like flirting, like, oh, ha, 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 you're so funny, pushing each other around. No, I never did that. And then you like fall ever. on top of each other. No. No, never in my life did I do that. Actually, I don't know what kind of kinky shit you were into, but no. Nope. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's more like TV than like really, but. Okay. I was going to say, because I never did any of that weird stuff like that. No, no pushing matches. I mean, you know, like me and Tyler had like that cake fight one time. Yeah, but that's because you guys had um, pent-up sexual energy. <laughs> okay, well, that's what I'm saying. Tommy and Martha. So, 9.30, friends leave. She's left with Tommy. That's the last time that she was seen alive. Okay. So, the investigators start there. They go to the Skakel family. They are super cooperative. They answer any and all questions the police have. The children's father was actually not home that night. In charge was the family's live-in tutor, Ken Littleton. He was 24. Um, it says he was a tutor, but I think he was actually like a nanny. You got, you know you got money when you have a live-in tutor. Yeah. I don't think he, I think he just like, he was a tutor because that sounded better for his teenage sons, but really I think he was just a nanny. Okay, that makes sense. But either way, you know you got money if you got to live in anything, so. But when Rushton heard of the murder and that his family was involved, he immediately came home to aid the investigation any way that he could. Michael, the younger brother, says that he left the friend group around 9.30 p.m. to visit his cousin Jimmy, where they watched Monty Python. I love that movie. I know you do. Monty Python's that old? I guess. Oh, wow. I never... Wow. I don't know. Go Google that. You know that's a, You know it's a work of art when it stands the test of time like that. If it's... I mean, that's old. Yeah. What year did it come out? Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Yeah, it came out in 1975. Yeah, there you go. It was probably like brand new. They were just down watching it. That's insane. You know that that's a good movie, though. That's how you know that a movie was like made for the ages because here I am born 20... No. Yeah, 20 years after that. Almost. almost. 18 years, 17 years. Whatever. Almost 20 years after that movie came out, which means I didn't watch it for 30 years, more than that, 35 years until after it came out, and I loved the heck out of that movie. I still quote it regularly. It's just a flesh wound. That's what I was going to say. That's the flesh wound movie, right? I don't love it yes, like you yes. do, but I've I, seen it. I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. 
I mean, it's a good movie, but I'm not in love with it like you are. Yeah, Monty Python on Holy Grail, one of my favorite movies of all time. I quote it regularly, "'Tis but a flesh wound!" as he's running around with no legs and no arms, headbutting him. It's one of my favorite movies. I know, and when I they know. clop around with the coconuts, clop, 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 clop. I freaking love that movie. I know you do. I might watch it tonight it, when but... I edit this episode. Well, there you go. It's on Netflix. Definitely seen it, but I don't love it like you do. I mean, it's a good movie, but no, it's funny. It's full of a like for me. It's full of um English things. <laughs> English things. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, like satire and, um, what are some English words? I don't know. Along the same line, it says, like, onomatopoeia, but not onomatopoeia. You know what I'm talking about, like, similes and, I don't know, there's, like, a lot of, um, it's it's a very deep movie. Like, you you think it's just, like, funny because, like, they're idiots, but, like, there's actually, like, a lot of education in that movie. Yeah, didn't you watch it the first time in school? Yeah, I watched it in English in class. English, yeah. Yeah, I watched it in, um, I don't remember, one of my English classes, one of my AP English classes, one of my honors English classes, because I was an honor kid. Look at me now. It all paid off. No, it didn't pay off. Why not? What do you mean? You're a rock star, all because of your honors English. I'm not a rock star. You are. By any means. Okay, anyways, back on topic here. So he watched Monty Python, Monty Python, he returned home around 11.30, went straight to bed. Tommy says that that night Martha went home soon after Michael left at 9.30, and he saw her walking in the direction of her house. He says that he then stayed in the rest of the night, he watched a little TV with his tutor Ken at 10 p.m., and went to do some homework, writing a paper about Abraham Lincoln. Michael's alibi checked out, his cousins all corroborated his story, and Tommy's did partially. Ken corroborated the TV watching, but there was no way to prove that he was in his room by himself. And also, no teacher at his school had assigned anything related to Abraham Lincoln. Maybe he was just doing it for fun. Uh, maybe. That'd be kind of like weird. I to write papers for fun. On Abraham Lincoln? Not on Abraham Lincoln, but when I was in, like, fourth or fifth grade, as a gifted student, like I was saying, you know, my honor roll classes, as a gifted student, when I would finish my work, there was a box in the back of the room, and... I would get, it was a privilege. I got to go back there and I got to pick like an index card and then I got to research whoever the index card was on. Okay. Well, he was a 17 year old boy, so I don't think he had that same. I'm just saying I did it. So yeah. In fourth or fifth grade, not at 17. I know lots of 17 year olds that would very much just write papers for fun, but right. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, but I guess that's a possibility. I just know that I got great joy out of it. Like I thought it was a privilege that I got to do extra work that I got no grade for. Nerd. (laughs) Anyway, so the police ask if they can look around the house, since that was her last known whereabouts, and they let them. In the house, they found a Tony Pena Golf Club set with a six- Oh, no! The murder weapon. The murder weapon is missing from the set. It's so weird that it would be found at the place she was last seen. I know. That is surprising. So, Tommy, looking the most suspicious at the moment- yeah, it wasn't Tommy, though, right? It was Ken? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good try, though. <laughs> I don't remember the case. I mean, I do remember parts of it, but... So, Tommy was the last person to see her. His alibi's very loose. Now the murder weapon's in their home. Looking pretty good. But they don't really have any solid evidence against him. They gave him two polygraphs. The first one came back inconclusive, and then he passed the second one a few days later. Okay. Martha's diary showed her complicated relationship with the brothers. So, one thing, like, the diary is, like, mentioned in, like, every source I found about, like, how the diary helped. Maybe they're just not giving up the experts, but I, the excerpts, but I don't feel like this diary really does much for me. Okay. I mean, really, they only give us, like... kept them secretive. I mean, yeah, obviously, they probably do, but, like, the ones that are, like, mentioned the most is that she wrote, I got into Tom's car, dot, dot, dot. I almost sat on Tom's lap, dot, dot, dot. He kept putting his hands on me, my knee, end quote. And then on another occasion, she wrote, quote, Michael's troubling... No, that was the wrong place for the quote. She wrote about Michael's troubling behavior, quote, 
Michael got really upset. He was a jerk. I really need to stop going there. End quote. Okay. That's really like the two quotes that are mentioned all the time. Yeah, that doesn't do anything for me. So maybe I'm putting your hand on someone's knee doesn't make you a murderer. No. I mean, I guess. And also being a jerk doesn't make you a murderer. No. It doesn't say like he kept forcing himself on my knee. Right. But I guess that's kind of what they're getting from that. Yeah, I don't see that though. That's not what I get from that at all. Me either. But the diary is mentioned a lot. And those are the most common phrases or excerpts or whatever you want to call them from the diary. So, okay. okay. I was going to leave them out, but it's in like all of the articles. Then I decided to include them. I'm glad you included them. I needed to hear those. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yes. So there were a few other initial suspects. Ken, as you just said. Martha had a boyfriend at the time. His name was Peter. And a neighbor, Dan. But there's really not much what about What was she those. doing hanging out with other boys and pushing them if she had a boyfriend? I don't know. Uh, it seems a little promiscuous. Okay, so anyways, a few other suspects. They looked into them. They didn't really pan out. They didn't really have any evidence on any of them either. So by the end of December of 1975, the police had interviewed over 250 people at this point. They gave dozens of polygraphs, but nothing. They weren't getting any closer to solving the case. And in 1976, the Skakels stopped being cooperative. So without them being cooperative, without, you know, getting their testimonies more, talking or looking around their house, things like that, they wouldn't be able to have any more progress for 15 years. Yeah. In 1991, William Kennedy Smith which was JFK's nephew, Tommy's cousin, was charged with rape in Florida. And during this investigation, there was a rumor that William was actually at the Skakels that night that Martha was murdered. Oh. So the media picks up the case again, and police investigate the rumors as well. But it really just happened to be rumors. William, there was no evidence that he was in attendance on this mischief night kickback. But the continuous press coverage did put pressure back on the police to solve this 15-year-old cold case. So they reopened it. And this time they started their focus on Ken. Initially, they ruled him out. But when the new investigators were looking at the files, they saw that Ken actually failed his polygraph. Oh, no. And since the murder, his life had taken quite a downward spiral. Um, See, that's why I thought it was Ken, because I have heard this before, and I remember Ken being, like, a big suspect. Yeah, he was a suspect. So, he was fired from being the family tutor slash nanny, whatever he was. He now has a pretty long history of drug and alcohol abuse, and he has a criminal record. Um, I could have swore I put in his rap sheet, but apparently I didn't. So, it was things like larceny, burglary, um... Arson. Yeah. He had a bunch of things. Was it arson? I just pulled that out of my butt. Oh, I don't know. You seemed pretty confident, so I was going with it. (laughs) I don't know. know. There was quite a few things. Burning things to the ground. There was quite a few. He had quite a criminal record, but I don't, I didn't put it in here, so my bad. But anyways, so they thought that his turn in his life was due to the involvement in the murder. So they bring him in again for questioning, and he fails two more polygraphs. But other than him seeming suspicious and these failed polygraphs. That's not good, my dude. No, but they don't really have anything against him other than he's kind of weird and he's having a bad time. But there's no physical evidence, no real motive. What reason did he have? They don't know. And all they have really are those polygraphs. But as we know, polygraphs don't mean anything. Right. Not in a court. Not like circumstantial evidence that is. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So Rushton, in an attempt to clear his family, decides that he's going to hire his own team of investigators. Ooh, scandalous. Yeah. He hires the Sutton Associates, and they go through all of the files and all of the evidence themselves. They re-interview all of the witnesses, everything they can do to clear the Skakels. 
Um, this report took about three years to go through all of it. And when it's done, he doesn't give the report to anyone. He just puts it away. Because he realized that they weren't innocent. Right. Right. And that's why he had been paid to prove their innocence and he couldn't do that. So Right. It wasn't looking very good for them. But in 1993, um, Dominic Dunn wrote a book, A Season in Purgatory, which was based off of the Martha Moxley case with some changes in different names. Like, it was just, like, based on her. It wasn't, like, completely true. Okay. And then in 1998, Mark Furman, who was from the O.J. Simpson case, had a book mm-hmm. come out called A Murder in Greenwich. Did you just say O.G. Simpson? No, I said O.J. Okay. I heard O.G. Well, I might have said O.G. because I'm dyslexic, but I meant O.J. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure that you didn't call him O.J. Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is the OG. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, OJ, like it's orange not funny, juice. We shouldn't be laughing no. at this. No, but I know who OJ Simpson is. Anyways, OJ Simpson. Um, he had a book come out called "The Murder in Greenwich: Who Killed Martha Moxley." In this book, okay. he named Michael Skakel as the killer, and he released all of the did mistakes. what they sue him. Mm. I mean, probably, but I didn't find anything that they did. I'm just saying if we can't call people trash, then I don't think other people can write books and call someone the murderer when they're not the murderer, like, convicted of such. I mean, they probably shouldn't be able to, but I don't know. I mean, I don't think they can. If we can't call people trash, then they can't do that. I mean, no, they they can't, but he did. Okay. He's got big balls. Yeah. So he... um. Also, so not only did he call Michael the murderer, he also released all of the mistakes that he believed the police made in this case. Okay. So there had, there, not there, there had not been a murder in Greenwich in 30 years prior to Martha. Right, so so they weren't equipped to handle this. Right, they were not equipped to handle a homicide investigation. But they did call in the state police at the beginning, so. Okay. But there were things like they. Did the state police take the case over? No, but they helped. Okay. So they just made, like, you know, a bunch of little mistakes. They didn't secure the crime scene. Um, There were also rumors that the police intentionally butchered the investigation because the Skakel family family was so prominent in the area that they kind of did it as, like, a favor to them or they were afraid of them. I could see that. But um, he put this in his book and... He also released, somehow, he got the findings to that Sutton report. Oh, yeah? He put those in his book as well. So, both of these books caused a big peak of interest to the public and revived the case yet again. So, in the Sutton Associates investigation, Michael and Tommy both changed their stories of what happened that night. Tommy admits he didn't just part ways. Right after 9.30, like he previously stated, he said that he and Martha continued to hang out for another 25 or so minutes. From 9.30 to 9.55, they made out some, they did some other light sexual things. He admits during this encounter, he unbuttoned her pants and pulled them down. This put him with Martha exactly during the time of death that they proposed. And also has him pulling down her pants, which is how Martha was found. Right. So that doesn't look very good. Right. Michael admitted that he also lied to the police. He did. He said that he did go to visit his cousin, but when he came home, he didn't go straight to bed. When he got home, he was just a little inebriated. Some sources say that he was drunk. Others say he was high. I don't know which, but either way, he was supposedly under the influence of something, and he was a little horny. So he, oh, yep. So he okay. climbed the tree outside of Martha's window and masturbated in it. What? That's disgusting. What the hell is wrong with him? I don't know, but that's what he did. What in the hell? So because of these um, changing stories, Michael also became a suspect. He was known to have a drinking problem and a temper, so that really contributed to their suspicions. But just like with Tommy, there really wasn't anything connecting him to the case. Okay, but like even if he's not convicted of murder, like he's a sexual predator. I mean, yeah, you would think so, but... He didn't admit that. You wouldn't think so. He is. Okay, but I'm just saying, like, he's saying, like, oh, well, I was horny, so I climbed a tree and masturbated. Like, the frick is wrong with you, dude? I mean, yeah, in public. Like, that's not okay, dude. No. No. 
it's kind of gross. But And, like, creeper. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, that's so creepy. I mean, he's a creepy dude. Okay. Yeah. So he was how old? 15? He was 15, yeah. They were both 15. Him and Martha. Right. And then Tommy Okay, but the other brother wasn't 15. No, Tommy was okay, 17. that's what I thought. In 1997, Michael made a tape recording of a book proposal for an autobiography he was working on. And that tape had the same confession that he lied to the police and he masturbated in the tree. A former classmate of Michael named Gregory Coleman came forward to report that Michael confessed to him during their time together at Elon Reform School. Michael had been sent to this reform school for drinking and driving when he was 17. Gregory says that Michael told him at their initial meeting, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. He then says that Michael... He wasn't a Kennedy, though, correct? He was a... Skagel. Skagel. Right, but he was, I guess, connected to the Kennedys, so to him that meant he was a Kennedy. Okay. Okay. He says that after he That's an awful weird way to lead with your meeting. Yeah, I agree. Hi there. My name is Michael, and I'm going to get away with murder because I'm a Kennedy. Like, what? Yeah. I mean, I could see, like, being like, hi, my name is Michael. I'm a Kennedy. Yeah, I could see that. But not, I'm going to get away with the murder. I'm a Kennedy. Yeah, that's weird. Okay. So, Gregory says that after he says that weird statement, he goes into detail of what happened that night with Martha. He says that he made some advances toward Martha, and she rejected him, so he drove a skull drove a golf club into her school some other students also said they heard similar stories from him and the elon center said that he confessed to them in group therapy to killing martha but he later recanted his confession and this is in 1997 yes why did it take them that long to come forward um well i don't know so what that was in 1975 well yeah because that was only two years after that that he was in the center. I don't know why it took so long. Okay, but, like, the murder happened in 1975, and then you're saying he was in the center in 1977? Mm-hmm. And then they came forward in 1997? Yeah. So, it's tw- I mean, that's 20 years. Like, why did it take them 20 years to be like, oh, hey, by the way, this dude admitted to murdering this girl? Well, maybe, like, because the case got revitalized, they went and talked to the Elon Center, where previously they hadn't. Okay, but what? Okay. It's cases like this that make me lose faith in humanity. Yeah. Because they shouldn't have had to go talk to the center when a 17-year-old boy said, I murdered my neighbor who has actually been murdered and I shoved a golf club into her skull and she was murdered by having a golf club shoved into her body. Somebody should have reported that. I mean, yeah, I agree. They should have, but... I don't know. Like, this is the kinds of, these are the kinds of cases that make me think, like, what in the hell is this world we're living in? I don't know. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. So then in 1998, a one-judge grand jury was appointed to go over the details of the case and see if there was enough evidence to arrest Michael. Um, During this, Ken testified in exchange for immunity, which... Why would he need immunity? um, Was he involved? I mean, he doesn't say he was, but I think he might be if he asked for immunity. Right. If he asked for immunity, then that makes me think that he had something to do with it as well. So his testimony basically was just like a timeline of the night that he was with the kids. He watched the TV. That was pretty much it. Like nothing incriminating to him at all. So why he asked for immunity, okay. I don't understand. But he did. And they gave it to him. Maybe he thought that, like, he could be held responsible because it, like, happened on his watch. Maybe. And, like, they were minors. Or he was involved. I mean, either way. But, I mean, even if he wasn't involved, just playing devil's advocate here. Like, even if he wasn't involved, he could have been concerned that, like, they would have, um, like, blamed him or, like, charged him with something because he was in charge of the minors and, like, Michael was drunk. and Yeah. I guess that's possible. You know. Maybe. Uh, Many students at the reform school testified during the hearings, but the main testimony was from that Gregory Coleman that had came forward. But then he later admitted that he was actually high on heroin during his testimony. That's great. But 
it wasn't thrown out. They kept it. So, okay. I thought that was kind of weird. And then... Oh, um, I love that. No. And then sometimes uh, later, Gregory died from a drug overdose. So, he probably really was high on heroin. Yeah, probably. So, these hearings took a year and a half to go through all of the evidence, and Michael Skakel was arrested in January of 2000. 25 years after the murders. The murder. I really hate that. Uh, yeah, that's a long time. Like, that's a long time. And also, like, again, like, everyone that he said something to and didn't, um, like, report it, like, they need to have a guilty conscience because clearly he was guilty and they didn't report it. And then also, like, what kind of shitbag person can live with themselves for 25 years? I don't know. I don't understand that. And, like, just go on and have, like, a whole life. Right. Like, he, like, got married and, like, had a kid, I think. Like, ugh. Yeah. That's just awful. Yeah. Um, when he did get arrested, though, his wife filed for divorce. So. I would hope so. So, initially, they were going to charge Michael as a juvenile, since at the time, he was 15, even though now, at this time, he's 40. Right. But... Um, later, that got changed by the judge assigned to the case, and he was tried as an adult. The as trial, he have been. yes, the trial started in May of two thousand two. There wasn't much evidence against Michael. Pretty much all of it was circumstantial. There was nothing tying Michael physically to the scene. The only thing was that murder weapon, but it didn't have any of his prints on it. And anyone who had access to the house had access to that golf club. And there was, you know, seven kids plus the tutor in the house that night, plus all of the friends. So their theory was that the motive was jealousy. They believed that when he climbed that tree to see Martha, he maybe saw Martha and Tommy. And that's kind of what fueled his jealous rage. And most people at this time were pretty confident that Michael wouldn't be convicted. Because the case against him was really weak. And he had, I mean, they had a lot of money, so he had really good lawyers. But despite all of that, on June 7, 2002, he was found guilty for the murder of Martha Moxley. And he was sentenced to 20 to life. Good. In 2004, he appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court. They denied his appeal, and then he went higher to the U.S. Supreme Court. They also denied it. In 2007, they tried for another appeal. A man came forward named, I'm going to butcher this name, and I'm sorry, Jatanto Bryant, which is Kobe Bryant's cousin. That's weird. So he came forward and said that that, um, the mischief night, October 30th, he was with two friends in the Bellhaven neighborhood, and that they found a golf club laying in the Skakel's yard. The two friends he was with picked it up and said they were going to attack a girl caveman style that night. So at that point, Chitanto decided that was not what he wanted to be a part of, and he bounced out. He left. But he did keep quiet until he came forward in 2007, and he said that he believed that those two boys were Martha's murderers. The judge denied his appeal. He said that that story just didn't make sense. Because if three African-American boys were walking around that neighborhood at night, they would have been noticed and no one reported them. So, it couldn't be true. Right. I would agree with that statement. I mean, it makes sense, but I feel like they could have. I would agree with that 100%, though. Honestly, like, no, I I agree with that. Especially, like, the time frame. The time frame and, like, the neighborhood, like, a gated, ritzy neighborhood. Yeah, no, I agree. They probably would have had the cops called on him just for walking around the neighborhood. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, probably. So, I can agree with that. So, in 2010, another appeal was requested on the grounds of ineffective counsel. They said that his previous counsel did not give Tommy as an alternative suspect in the trial. Um, apparently, there was a psychologist at Michael's cousin's house. as They didn't call him as a witness to prove that he was there. I don't know why a psychologist makes a difference, but maybe because it's like a trusted adult. Right. Maybe. I don't know. Why was there a psychologist there? Why was there a psychologist there if they were all hanging around drinking? Uh, I don't know. Watching Monty Python with them, I guess. I know, but I think if anything, that just makes it worse. Yeah. I don't know. 
I don't know that that really like helps them any. Like, oh, there's a trusted adult here. Like, if anything, I think it would just get the psychologist in trouble. Hence why they probably didn't bring them forward. Yeah, probably. Because, I mean, allowing minors to drink is illegal. Right. So it would make sense of why they didn't call them forward. I mean, yeah, unless they thought it was really going to get Michael off. Then they should have. I don't think that they must have. I don't think that they thought he was going to get I don't think that they must not have thought that it was going to get him off. But they were also confident that they were going to win, so they probably didn't try very hard. Yeah, I don't know. So there was also three witnesses that could have refuted Gregory Coleman's testimony about the confessions that said it wasn't true, and they didn't call them. They said that, you know, okay. he made it all up because of his drug use. And this uh, appeal was actually granted. And the judge vacated Michael's conviction and a new trial. This was actually granted and the judge vacated Michael's conviction and a new trial was ordered on October of 2013. So after more than 10 years in prison, Michael was let out on a $1.2 million bail awaiting his new trial. The Connecticut state then appealed this and sent it to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Three years later, they rejected the initial appeal, so Michael was once again guilty and was headed back to prison. In 2017, Michael's lawyers asked the Supreme Court to reconsider their ruling, and they agreed to look at it again. In 2018, the Supreme Court vacated the conviction again. The state asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review the findings, and in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court said no, not getting involved in that. So... Currently, Michael is innocent in the eyes of the law, and he still has the option to be retried. But as of today, there has not been any new trial. The case is now 45 years old. Some of the main witnesses are dead. The defense has had a lot of years to perfect the arguments. And there's no new evidence in the case. So, Well, I mean, do you think he's guilty? Mm, I don't know that he's innocent, but I kind of don't think he acted alone, personally. I got you. Um, the Moxley family, they believe that Michael is guilty. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of the theories kind of agree that it was like Michael, Tommy, and Ken all together. And that makes right. sense for me. They were all just like covering up for each other. And that's why they all were kind of Yeah, sketchy. that makes sense for me as well. Yeah, that was quite a roller coaster of his um, appeals and overturning. And Yeah, he really tried to get off on that. Like he really tried to like appeal that. Yeah. And, you know, the 12th time was the charm. I think he'd be, like, out of appeals by then. Yeah. But That's insane. Yeah. So, I feel like a jerk here. Why? Because we were like, oh, are the Kennedys even, like, where are the Kennedys now? Are they even still a thing? Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a Kennedy? Is part of the Kennedy line. <sighs> I think his wife is a Kennedy. <laughs> I didn't know that. It seems that his wife is a Kennedy. Because his son. Okay, so I found this article. <laughs> The young Kennedys that you need to know. Okay, please tell. And, like, number one on the list is, I don't know that they're, like, ranked. I I don't want to, they're not ranked by, like, who's the most important, I don't think. But, like, the first one that pops up is Patrick Shriver Schwarzenegger. Okay. And it says, son of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver, grandson of Eunice Kennedy Shriver. So, like, I think Maria, yeah, Marina Shriver's a Kennedy. Like, her mother was a Kennedy and then got married to a Shriver and then she became a Shriver and then she married a Schwarzenegger. So, anyway, like, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger's son is a Kennedy. <laughs> Didn't know that. Kind of a big deal. Arnold Schwarzenegger is kind of a big deal. Yeah, just a little. So. Who else? Is there anyone else that we know of on that list? Mm, it's a whole bunch of them, but I mean, I'm not really going to sit here and like read about all of the Kennedys. You got Robert Bobby Kennedy the third. You got Joe Kennedy the third, age 37. You got Connor Kennedy, age 23. Um, he dated Taylor Swift. Oh yeah, I knew a Kennedy dated Taylor Swift. Yeah, Connor Kennedy dated Taylor Swift back in 2012. Mm, yeah, Kyra Kennedy. I wonder if any She's of her songs Connor's are about younger him. sister. She got herself embroiled in a cyberbullying scandal, and she's part of a Rich Kids on Instagram group. Oh, yeah? With <laughs> with Tiffany Trump. Hmm. Um, Catherine Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. Yeah, I don't uh, really know who any of these people are, so. 
Christine Schwarzenegger. I mean, I know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. Yep, I know Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's it. And I know who Condor. I know who Condor Kennedy is now that that I mean he dated Taylor Swift. So I know pretty much everyone that dated Taylor Swift. So what song is about him? I don't know that they did it long enough for him to have a song. <sighs> uh, Kick Kennedy. She, that's a girl. Uh, she's made contributions to televisions with roles in The Newsroom, Gossip Girl, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. So Kick was in Gossip Girl. Um, I mean, it just seems like a lot of them are into, like, politics and, like, um, human rights, and um, some of them are into, like, acting. Gotcha. But, yes, yeah, so I, I apologize for um, our ignorance. Act, acting as if the Kennedys were not still a big deal. Apparently they are, so. So, yeah, so. Um, as much as I love the conspiracies of them, you would think I would know that. Yeah, you would think so. But yeah, anyway, so um, any other thoughts on that? So according to a quick Google search, Begin Again is about Connor Kennedy. Hmm. Interesting. Which is one of my favorite songs. Me too, I love that song. It's one of my I'm favorites. singing it in my head right now. Me too. I'm not singing it in my head because I don't have an internal monologue, but I'm <laughs> thinking about it in your head. Thinking of the song. <laughs> Um, also, Starlight is about um, Ethel and Bobby Kennedy. Really? Mm-hmm. I did know that one. I did not know that. Yep. Um, I don't know. This is an article from like 2012. I mean, apparently quite a few songs are about Connor Kennedy, but it doesn't seem that any of them are about like him being a jerk, so... Um, it says stay, stay, stay. Uh, it says stay, stay, stay. It's about Connor Kennedy, supposedly. Um, it says like you know, and she jokingly talks about how he put on a football helmet after she threw a phone at him, and Connor Kennedy played football like at the time he played football, like for the school that he attended. Gotcha. And it said like that. Um, Threw his head back like a little kid laughing, laughing like a little kid. And it says, technically, Connor's not little. He's 18, but Taylor was 22 at the time. Right. Uh, and then everything has changed. That um, the capitalized letters in the lyrics to everything has changed spell out Hyannis Port, which is a Massachusetts village where Swift is now an apparently confused resident, which is... Would make sense because that's by Connor Kennedy. If they, I think the Kennedys are all pretty much in Connecticut, are they not? I think so. Um, not Connecticut, Massachusetts. I don't know why I said that, but and then it says Starlight is about Ethel and Robert Kennedy dancing at a mid-century formal. She came across a picture of them like well at like well with the Kennedys, and it inspired her to write that song. And then Treacherous, it says, is also. <laughs> Man, so quite a few songs. About. I did not know that. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. What good lesson we just had on Taylor Swift and the Kennedys. Yes. Thank you, sir. You're quite welcome. I'm glad that I could be of service to you. <laughs> you know what would make this um, ending of this episode so much better? Is if we had Taylor Swift tickets for the Eras Tour. Well, we didn't get them after we waited in line for eight hours, so. I'm aware, and I've been watching very patiently to see if any of them come within our budget, and they don't. Oh, I know. Me too. I've been checking, like, every day, but. $500 Same. for a concert ticket still is not my budget, so. I would 100% pay it if I had the money. Okay, but I said it's not in our if budget. I had dis- if I had disposable income, I would pay that. Yeah, if I had disposable income, I would too, but unfortunately, we don't, so. I know. It just sucks, man. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a lovely evening. I appreciate you telling me this horrible story. <sighs> Anytime. That's what I'm here oh, for. Martha Moxley. Bye. Hey, everyone. If you like what you heard and you want to support a small podcast, please give us money at www.patreon.com forward slash weekly dose of wicked, where you can join one of our four amazing tiers. Starting at just a measly $3 a month, 
That's literally 10 cents a day. You can join the Slightly Wicked. After that, we've got the Moderately Wicked for just $5 a month, followed by the Awesomely Wicked for $7 a month. And for those high rollers, big ballers, we have the Extraordinarily Wicked. So head on over, check it out. If you like what you see, join it up. If subscriptions aren't your jam, head on over to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash W-D-O-W, where you can give us a one-time donation to buy us a coffee or, you know, like podcasting equipment, which would probably be a better use of our money. Feel free to give us a follow on Instagram at weekly underscore dose underscore of underscore wicked, or you can just search weekly dose of wicked and we'll pop up because we're the only ones. Or you can give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash weekly dose of wicked. Or, you know what, you could just do both, because that would be better for us. For a direct feed of our podcast, please go to www.weeklydoseofwicked.buzzsprout.com. Great news, guys. We've made it big time, and you can now listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yep, yep. Even Pandora. They finally let us in. Make sure to come back next Wednesday for your Weekly, weekly Dose of Wicked. wicked. But um, psh.